This sermon was preached by Caleb Bunch, head pastor and church planner of Redeeming Grace Fellowship in Massapequa, New York. Redeeming Grace was planted in 2015 and is seeking to reach central Nassau County with the gospel. You can find sermons from this series and many others at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness in giving us your word. We thank you for the glory of your son that is revealed through your word. We thank you that we who are here today are here by your providential guidance that you have led us to this place and that you know that we need what is being said this morning. And Lord, I pray that my words will not be mine, but they will be your words. Please, Lord, bless everything that is said this morning and that those who are here will be blessed, they will be encouraged, that they will be uplifted, they will be convicted. And Lord, I pray that in all things your Son, Jesus Christ, would receive the glory and honor. Today we pray that this sermon would be clear and that there would be understanding on the part of the people. I pray, Lord, for myself that you would give me wisdom on exactly how to say these things and what to say. Please, Lord, be with us today in a way that we will walk out and say that we felt the presence of the Lord in our midst. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If I was to ask you to write down the three most notable or memorable miracles of Jesus Christ, and I was to give each one of you a piece of paper and a pen to do that in 30 seconds, my guess is 99% of those of you who wrote that down would have included what we will see in today's text, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. This is a very well-known miracle by people who are saved and those who are unsaved alike. Please follow along as I begin reading in our text this morning, found in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them, saying many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to to, to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. 
As mentioned, this miracle is well known by believers and unbelievers alike. This is the only miracle that is present in all four gospel accounts. Why is that? Why is this miracle so well known? What makes it so significant? Consider the following factors that will underscore the amazing nature of what God does here, right in the middle of Mark chapter 6. First, consider the fact that this gathering consists of 5,000 men. Now, in Matthew's account, he will say specifically, that does not include women or children. Most likely, these were families that had come to gather. So the number of people, even though it's 5,000 men, probably adds up to about 20,000 people at least. Now, this is undergirded by the fact that when they say, shall we go spend 20 or spend 200 denarii for bread, 200 denarii for bread would buy enough loaves for 22,000 people. So most likely this is somewhere in that 20,000 to 22,000 person range. Spontaneous gatherings like this do not occur. When you want to gather 20,000 people, you have to do a lot of groundwork. You have to have street teams. You have to put out pamphlets and flyers and invite people and give them incentives to be there. This is very unusual that that many people would spontaneously gather to see somebody. Consider the fact that Madison Square Garden only holds a maximum of 18,200. And here we're talking around 20,000. This is incredible when you consider the fact that the nation of Israel only had about 700,000 people living in it during this time. Which means that one in every 35 people in the country were there at this event. In fact, one commentator and scholar says about this event, it is likely that every single person in Israel knew someone who was there. Consider also where these people came from. The disciples have just returned from going out on their mission trip. We learned about this last week. They had gone out through the different towns and villages of Israel. And the Lord had sent them in all different directions. And they were doing miraculous things. They were healing and casting out demons. And they were teaching the words of Jesus. And the important thing to note is they were not taking credit for this. They were giving all the authority to Christ and saying this is his power. So these people are coming to see the source of what they have been hearing from the disciples. They want to know who is this that gave these disciples power to do what they have been doing. When we add to the understanding of the size of the crowd and the reason that they had come, and we bring that together with the fact that Galilee, where they are now gathering, is a hotbed of insurrectionist activity and anti-Roman attitudes, we see all of the makings here of a political revolt. Consider what they want. They want to get rid of the Roman government. They want to be rid of the authority. And now they are gathering to someone who gives them power. And as we will see, can feed them at will. Also consider the fact that the multiplication of food is much more amazing than we probably consider it today. I am so used to just having food available. I don't think about where it comes from. I go to my refrigerator, I open the door, there's food there. I go to the grocery store, I look at the shelves, and there's a ton of food there. I go to the drive-thru, I give them a couple bucks, and they give me a bag of food. I don't think about where it comes from. Maybe if I did think about where it comes from, I wouldn't eat all of the things that I do. But we don't even think about all of the hard work and labor that goes into creating everything we consume. 
This is an incredible miracle because the people who are here are people who knew what it meant to harvest grain. They knew what it meant to pound it into flour. They knew what it meant to get up early in the morning and to make their daily bread. They knew what it was to be hungry. And they knew what it was to labor for their meals. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, here we have a creative power beyond all question. Something real solid and substantial that must plainly have been called into being which did not exist before. There is no room left for the theory that the people were under the influence of some optical illusion or heated imagination. 5,000 hungry people would have never been satisfied if they had not received in their mouths material bread. In short, it is plain that the hand of him who made the world out of nothing was present on this occasion. Do you see what he's saying here? This miracle is experiential in nature. Now, it's one thing if you go to an event and Jesus is there and someone walks up to him and someone says, I have a sore throat and Jesus touches him and that man is healed. You can say, that could have been a parlor trick. That guy might never have actually had a sore throat. Maybe he was just pretending. But this takes away all possibility of optical illusion. They tasted the food that Jesus was multiplying that very day. These 5,000 people were each and every one of them recipients of the mercy and compassion of the Savior. Consider also that one aspect of the curse of Adam was that now work is going to... Uh, Work is going to be difficult, and that now if they are going to harvest food, it is going to be a challenge. It will be thorns and thistles invading the ground, and it will become hard and difficult to work. And now Jesus, just as we have seen him doing constantly, is once again overturning the curse that we saw in Adam. He is showing that in Christ, food is just multiplied. He is able to do what now, since Adam, has been very difficult to do in the Garden of Eden food was abundant you just go pick it off a tree and it's there to this day work is necessary and difficult in order to get what we want to eat to be satisfied and here jesus is saying i can satisfy you with no effort at all so in order to examine this text we're going to look at it from the three following angles and specifically we are going to consider jesus from these angles first we will look at the good shepherd Secondly, we will see him as the good teacher. And finally, we will see him as the good sacrifice. First, the good shepherd. Now, let's get the picture here of what is going on in this wilderness region of Galilee. The disciples have just returned. They have met Jesus at what seems to be a designated place of meeting. They have all come back on what seems to be a designated day as they have all returned at the same time. And they begin telling him about everything that they had done. And when they do this, a large crowd comes around them. They have followed them. And it seems as though it says they cannot even eat. They are exhausted. And Jesus sees that they are exhausted. So Jesus says to them, get into a boat and have some rest. And so they get into the boat, not to cross to the other side of the Galilee, but to do what oftentimes people would do to make a quick move up the coast. They would simply get into the boat and let the wind move them down to a desolate place where they might have some rest. As their boat is traveling, the people in the villages who have come to hear Jesus are looking out and seeing, there they go. 
And there is a multitude of people that begin draining out of those villages and cities and following that boat down the coastline until it docks. And in fact, it says they get to this area, probably one of the few areas where you can dock on that side of the Galilee. The crowd gets there first. They're so excited to hear Christ. Throngs of people simply trying to make their way there to hear Jesus. Then we come to verse 34. It says, And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. We're going to camp out here for just a while. That he had compassion on them, because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. The first time we see the phrase, sheep without a shepherd in the Bible, is not here. In fact, it's not even in the New Testament. And what I'd like to do for the next few moments is to show you how this miracle of Christ is showing Jesus to be exactly what the Old Testament has been promising for thousands of years. The first time we see this phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is in the book of Numbers, verse 27, verses 15 through 17. When Moses who knows now he is not allowed to enter into the promised land, is pleading with the Lord, please raise up another leader. He has been watching them for 40 years make foolish mistakes to make idiots of themselves in front of the Lord who complain about everything. And he says, please raise up for them a shepherd. Here are the words. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over this congregation who shall go out before them and who will come in before them, who shall lead them out and who shall bring them in, that the whole congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep without a shepherd. Moses was going to die. He wanted the Lord to help them by giving them another man. He had shepherded them faithfully for 40 years. Now it was time for God to raise up someone else to lead them out of slavery and into the promise. The the immediate answer to Moses' prayer, of course, was Joshua. This man, who was a godly man, who was one of the original 12 spies, he takes them into Israel, a great military commander who conquered the enemies of the Lord, and he led them into victory, and he led them into rest, and his very name, Yeshua, means Yahweh is salvation. But now, here we, as we see in Mark 6, in this barren wilderness in central Galilee stood another man, hundreds of years later, who bore the very same name, Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. And he is standing in front of a body of people who have been conquered, who have been oppressed, both politically and spiritually. And Jesus is the better Joshua the better Yeshua, who leads his people to victory. And he is standing them as the true shepherd of the sheep. Now this is not the first time either that we've seen someone take bread and multiply it to feed many more people than you would expect. The first time we see this miracle is actually, uh, this first time we see the miracle of uh, growth of food is from Elijah. It's well known. He's known for multiplying the oil and the flour of the widow of Zarephath. But we also see from Elisha, This same miracle is one of his lesser known miracles. He takes 20 barley loaves in 2 Kings chapter 4 and he multiplies them to feed 100 people. Now these are probably small loaves and to feed 100 soldiers is a very challenging thing. But that's considered one of the great miracles of Elisha. We just don't know of it as well as the others. But the Lord used this miracle 
Jesus uses this miracle to show that he is the greater prophet than Elijah or Elisha. He was the prophet who was to come. But Jesus did not merely make these 20 loaves into 100. He made five loaves and two fish enough to feed thousands upon thousands. He is the great prophet who was foretold. Now the Old Testament also would often refer to the kings of Israel as the shepherds of Israel. The shepherds of the sheep of Israel. In fact, this may have originated with David. We don't see it before that. It's very possible that David is the first one because before he became king, he was the shepherd. And much of what he writes in the Psalms, in fact, our Old Testament reading earlier, Psalm 23, shows you the history of David being a shepherd. He experienced it, he understands that, and he correlates that to a good leader. And here we see that Jesus is going to be referenced in a similar way to these kings. Most of the time the Old Testament refers to the kings of Israel as shepherds. It does so in a negative way. In fact, most of the time God is rebuking Israel's kings and saying, You have failed to be a good shepherd. You're a bad shepherd. God had much to say about this, and if you want to see the best chapter for this in the entire Old Testament, take time to read Ezekiel chapter 34. I'm just going to quote two of the verses from it today, verses 10 and 11. It says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for the sheep, and I will seek them out. Here, there is a condemnation of the shepherds, the kings of the Old Testament. And God is saying, they have failed to do what they were called to do. I am going to send my own king, my own shepherd, who will come and lead the people. The placement of this miracle here, also we should see, in Mark chapter 6, is very interesting. Mark places it directly after a feast, a banquet, a birthday celebration of a king, of a shepherd. A shepherd who was supposed to be leading Israel, Herod, the wicked king, who we saw last week was an incredibly evil man. That banquet that he threw for himself was motivated by selfishness, but the banquet of Jesus is motivated by compassion. He sees the people and he has compassion on them as sheep without a shepherd. His mission was to satisfy their desires and their needs. Herod's desire was to satisfy his own, as we saw last week. Herod was leading the people deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. But when we see Jesus, he teaches the people. He's teaching them for hours and hours before he feeds them. He is feeding them long before he gives them physical food. And he is doing that by teaching them the right way to live before God. He is doing what the kings of the Old Testament were supposed to be doing. Jesus is the better king. He is the king who rules with justice and mercy and with compassion. One can clearly see from this miracle that Jesus is the living embodiment of the good shepherd that we read about earlier in our Old Testament text. He is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In this passage we are seeing that God satisfies his people with good things. That the things that we need, we can have in Christ. 
We see that all authority and power is in Christ. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, it says in Psalm 23. In this picture that we have from this miracle in Mark chapter 6, it's almost like Jesus is intentionally drawing our minds from Psalm 23 to this. It says here in Mark that he made them group up into small bodies just like shepherds do with their sheep and to lay down in groups on the green grass. And the imagery is exactly what I see happening there in Psalm 23. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Here he lays down the people. He puts them in the grass. And as they would when they would eat in these times. They would recline for a meal. He's making them to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Remember the disciples had just returned. From an exhausting mission trip. Probably three months. Of going out to share the good news of Jesus. And they come back and I see for them. As well as for the others. That Jesus here is restoring them. He is giving them rest. He leads me in paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. This teaching of Jesus. I love to teach. I love to preach. I love to declare the word of God. I love to explain what the Bible says. Nobody. Nobody has ever taught like this man. Jesus is standing there, probably sitting there, and declaring to them the truths about the way of the Lord. And as the people are reclining and eating, he is continuing to teach them the way of righteousness for his name's sake. Now we know from John's gospel that the majority of these men and women who heard, heard this sermon, the very next day they reject him. The very next day, as we learn in John chapter 6, verse 66, they leave him and want nothing to do with him. But for those who were his sheep here, he is even in this instance preparing a meal for them in the presence of their enemies. Jesus is indeed the good shepherd. Well, let's, let's get practical. Where does the rubber meet the road here? We, we know this. Many of you have heard this exact story many times, hundreds of times since you were a child. What does this mean for us? It means that he cares for you. If you are in Christ, he cares for you. His work in your life is for your good and for his glory. It can be really easier for us to major on points of theology, and that's good. It's important to to study theology and doctrine. But we can forget that Jesus cares for us. We can forget that Jesus loves us in this way. Now, you might be experiencing hardships. In fact, many of you, I know the hardships you're experiencing. I know what is going on in your life. I know life is hard and challenging. And every day you wake up with a struggle and a, an opportunity to serve the Lord through suffering. I know that. And you might say, it does not feel to me like right now Jesus cares about me. But friend, let me tell you, Jesus is a kind and compassionate shepherd who is always working in your life for your good and for his glory. The promise of Romans 8.28 is this, that all things work together for good. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean that all things feel good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It means all things work together for good. That means when you are suffering. When you feel that hunger pain that these people were feeling on that mountainside. It means that Jesus is using that to work in and through your life. He is conforming you into his image. He cares for his sheep. Earlier I showed you a video of a sheep that was stuck in a hole. Jesus says I have compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are like that. 
They are morons. They crawl into a hole and get stuck, and the only thing that is left is their feet protruding from the grass. Jesus looks at them, and what he is saying to them is not a kind statement. They are like sheep that are foolish. They are going to harm themselves. They are going to have no direction. They are going to hurt themselves in a life that is completely senseless. Jesus is looking at them and saying, I have compassion on them because they are fools. They have no common sense. It's just like we see multiple times in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Judges. It's like the people they lived, uh, there was no king in those days, and so they did whatever was right in their own eyes. And that was a recipe for disaster. Sheep without shepherds, that's a recipe for disaster. But here we see Jesus coming before them and teaching them and leading them. And for all who would continue to follow them, he continued to be their shepherd. Now, this is the most broad, common sense, practical application that you will ever hear, but don't forget it. Listen to the shepherd. Listen to the shepherd. The shepherd knows the way the sheep should go. The shepherd knows where to lay them down. The shepherd knows what to do for the sheep. The sheep do not know what to do for themselves. We do not know the best thing for our lives. We don't know, but he does. Listen to the shepherd. Now, this is Sunday school level Bible application here. But I feel as though many of us forget it day in and day out. Listen to the shepherd. We do that through intake of the word. Through digesting the Bible and what it teaches us. Through regular Bible consumption. We also do this through involvement in a good Bible-believing church. And I am thankful that you are here to be shepherded by the word of God in that way. We also do this through a lifestyle of prayer. Not, not praying just for a meal. Not praying just when it's convenient. Not praying just when we feel like it. Not just when something terrible has occurred. We pray because we need to pray regularly. And the Lord directs us and leads us through prayer. Jesus indeed is the good shepherd. And he does lead his sheep. But let's move now to consider one of the ways that he does that. And he does that by being the good teacher. So point number two, the good teacher. I want you to look closely for a moment at the disciples' role in this miracle. Let's consider the order of events. First, the disciples seem to be acting responsibly. They're doing something, and we don't see this that often, they're doing something that seems very intelligent. They go to Jesus and they look out and they say, there is a problem getting ready to occur. These people have traveled a long way. They have come out in the hot wilderness sun. They are going to be very hungry. And 20,000 people that are really hungry can be quite a problem. Try to go to a restaurant at a busy time. That's a, that's a challenge. There's a big wait. Try to go to a Middle Eastern restaurant during this time in the world's history with 22,000 people, it's going to be a severe problem. He says, why don't we do this wisely? Let's just tell people, hey, you go that way, you go that way. Let's send them out to the different villages so they can all have food and so there won't be a riot on our hands. That's what we don't want, Jesus. We see this as they said in verse 35, and when it grew late, the disciples said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go in the surrounding countryside and villages so they might buy themselves something to eat. Jesus' response to them, when he says to them, is surely not at all what they were expecting. They were not planning on Jesus saying what he is about to say. And this is definitely not what they wanted to hear. Verse 37. But he answered them and said, you give them something to eat. 
Wow. I've been in charge of several things before, events, uh, or been involved in them, uh, both with the church and outside of it, where you prepare and you work really hard and to organize, get everything ready, and then you get there day of, there's something that hasn't been done, and the person who's, who's organizing looks at you and says, uh, we forgot this, you're on in 30 seconds, go. There's this feeling you get where it's like your stomach just turns upside down, where you know you have a responsibility that has been thrust upon you that you cannot do, at least not well. And here the disciples have something greater than anything that's ever been thrust upon me or upon you. They are told, hey, you go feed these 22,000 people. Get a meal ready right now. I can just imagine the feeling in their stomachs as they heard these words from the Master. And so we hear their response, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 200 denarii is eight months worth of wages. Now it's hard to know for me, I, I, I can't really tell here if they're speaking in sarcasm. Some scholars tend to think that they are. Jesus, do you think that's a good idea? I mean, really? Go spend 200 bucks on buying all this food for these people? You think that's a good idea, Jesus? It's possible that they were speaking with this sarcasm. They might have been saying, Jesus, that's a ton of food. Do you expect us to carry it? We don't have any wheelbarrows. We don't, we don't have any way to get it here. That's not a sustainable ministry model, Jesus. Is that really what you think we should be doing with our, our money regularly? This is, if they ask for this again tomorrow, we're going to be broke. Or rather, are they saying this in stunned disbelief? Are they responding to Jesus with a heart that said, Lord, we want to honor you. We want to do what you say. We want to obey you. We want to listen. And, and we want to serve you. We, we would like to be able to do what you are asking for, you, for us to do right now. But how on earth are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to feed all these people? We're 12 men. We have no ability to do what you're asking. They probably had this sinking feeling that I was mentioning. The feeling of inability. The feeling of insufficiency. The feeling of a lack in themselves. Now, we cannot know for certain, but seeing the way the disciples have sought to honor Jesus all throughout this ministry so far, seeing how they're, they're trying, they don't always get it right, but they're trying, I tend to think this is probably the attitude that they had. I don't think they were being sarcastic. I think more than likely they were responding with dumbfounded, dreaded, overwhelmed helplessness at the task. They were unable to pull off something like this. I think it's exactly what the disciples came to understand later. And that's why this was so significant to them. And that's why they all, all the four gospel accounts have this in them. Because what they learned from this for the rest of their life is that Jesus was teaching them something very important. He was teaching them 100% full dependence upon him. Now I do the same thing with my kids on occasion. Uh, for example, we have uh, a neighbor who is behind our house, and they have this massive tree, the biggest one in our block in our area. It is humongous, and although it provides great shade and we love it, it also attracts hundreds of birds. And I am not exaggerating when I say four to 500 birds every night make their home in the branches of this tree. And that means that their feathers and their droppings go everywhere in our backyard, which is horrific and disgusting, and it's terrible. So no matter how much we clean it, it's back the next day. So I decided to do the most backwater hillbilly thing that I could do. I bought a couple scarecrows that looked like, um, one looks like an owl, like a big owl, and then a small owl, and then a hawk. And then I duct taped them to the uh, different aspects of the house and fence and up on the chimney. 
And when I was preparing to do this, I take my son outside with me, Ace, and I say to Ace, who's five, okay, Ace, how are you going to get this up there? How are you going to put this hawk up there on the, on the chimney? And he's beginning to realize that I expect him to do this. I expect him to climb up onto the roof and climb up the chimney and duct tape this fake bird onto the chimney. And he begins to realize that I want him to do this. And he begins to re- be terrified. And he begins to make all these reasons and excuses why he can't do it. And although they're genuine and true, his attitude the entire time was, I want to do it. I want to do what you're asking me to do, but I just can't do it. I don't have the ability to climb up there. And so finally, after all of the things he said, he just looks down and says, Dad, you're going to have to do it. (laughs) And that's exactly what I wanted him to say. I wanted him to know that he can't do anything on the roof. That he can't climb up there right now. Even though I'm going to put a ladder there and I'm going to go up there, he can't do that yet. And what Jesus is doing and what he is showing the disciples is the exact same thing. You do it. He knew they couldn't do it. He knew this was a command they could never actually fulfill. He is teaching them, you can't do it, but I can. One of the most freeing things that I have ever heard in my entire life is from a sermon from Ed Moore, the pastor of North Shore Baptist Church. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he said this in a sermon several years ago. He said, the the phrase that God never gives you more than you can handle is a lie from the pit of hell. That God always gives you more than you can handle. But he never gives you more than he can handle. And that was so freeing to me because I needed to hear that in that time. And the disciples needed to hear that in this time. And I believe you need to hear that this morning. That there is every day going to be something that you cannot handle, but he can. God's power is made known to us more clearly when we realize, I can't do this. And we call out onto the Lord for help. The safest place for a Christian to be is in absolute dependence on Christ. Consider the words that the Lord said to Paul after Paul asked the Lord to take away his weakness in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. It says, my grace is sufficient for you. God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. And the implication there is in your weakness. Paul... My power is made known when you are weak. Then you will see, you will see, that I am what is pulling you through. My grace is sufficient for you, he says. Not just to Paul. His grace is sufficient for you today. So call upon him. It was a setup the whole time. The disciples came back from their mission trip feeling great about themselves. Think about this. They have been performing miracles. None of us have ever done this. He is going out. He has sent them out to go do miracles and teach people. And they have brought back with them 22-ish thousand people. We've been a church plant for just less than a year. And we're growing, but we are not growing at this rate. They brought back 22,000 people with them. They probably feel pretty good about themselves. And now Jesus says to them, hey, you think that's a big deal? Feed them. You brought them here? Give them some food. Give them some dinner. He gives them an impossible task because he is setting them up the whole time. But what about you? Are you living your life like that? Like the disciples? Feeling great? about your accomplishments and everything that you've been able to do, feeling great about your own strength and your own power, feeling like you get through every day because you can just, you're a go-getter, you're a hard worker, you're, you're just the best you can be. 
Do you feel like you're doing everything and attempting every uh, to approach every obstacle in your own strength? Can you do that? Do you feel like you are able? When hard things come, when your car breaks down or you get that call you don't want from the doctor, or when you're in danger of being laid off, or when your kids just won't obey for anything, or when you're fighting sin and you just can't seem to beat it, or you're being called to be holy as he is holy, can you do that? The, the fact is, you cannot do that on your own. You cannot live in a state of righteousness on your own. It is impossible. If you have beaten sin on your own strength, then you haven't truly beaten it, you've just temporarily pushed it back. You need Christ. Whose strength are you relying upon in your everyday battles? Your circumstances and your spiritual warfare that you experience is always divinely designed to point your attention right back to Christ. Just like this action, this request from Christ, you go out and feed them, he never expected them to actually do the work. He was going to do the work the whole time, but he still used them to pass out the bread. God is setting you up every day to see that you're incapable, but he is able. So now let's consider this Jesus from one more angle. The good sacrifice. This chapter displays for us the great and mighty power of God. Jesus effortlessly does what no other person ever could. In fact, I think the miracle is made all the more incredible from the fact that Mark doesn't dwell on it at all. None of the gospel authors do. They don't explain all the ways that he was doing something. It doesn't seem as though Jesus is putting on a show here. He's just passing out bread and passing out bread and passing out bread and passing out bread and it just continues to multiply over and over again. He doesn't even break a sweat. In fact, he probably never even stood up during this event. We know that they would teach sitting down during this time. He probably never even stood up from his seat to do this incredible, miraculous event. But this is not the greatest work that Jesus would ever do. This is considered one of his greatest miracles, but it is by no means the greatest work that he would ever do. Consider it. What did it cost him to break this bread? What did it cost him to make more of it? What did it cost him to give it away? Nothing. It cost him nothing. But this good shepherd came to earth on a mission. Jesus says to the people in John chapter 10 verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What did it cost him to become the bread of life? What did it cost, cost him to be broken? What did it cost him to give himself away? It cost him his life on the cross, poured out unto death for all who would ever believe. Now this miracle is incredible. This miracle of feeding the 5,000, it's, it's an incredible thing. But those people were hungry again the next day. They were temporarily satisfied. But they were not continually satisfied. But there is something that satisfies, and it is Christ himself. We learn from John chapter 6, verse 15, that these people were ready to revolt. They were ready to make Jesus king. Notice what it says here in John 6, 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. After feeding these 5,000 people, Jesus knew, and as we're going to see even more next week, he knew these people wanted to make him king. And I believe he knew the disciples were okay with that. And they were going to force Jesus into a position as a ruler. And you might ask yourself, well, isn't that the goal? Wasn't that Jesus' purpose here, to be king over these people? Isn't that what he wanted the whole time? But please know this, nobody makes Jesus king. 
Not these people, not you. Nobody makes Jesus king. Jesus is king. And we simply have to recognize that. We simply need to bow to his authority. As Jesus is standing there, he is already king over every person who is in front of him. They just want to make him one of those temporary political rulers that they're used to. They want to make him something far less than he really is. And that's the problem with people who come to Jesus in a, in a fictitious way. They, they come to a fake Jesus. They come to a Jesus that, that isn't the Jesus of the Bible. And they make him to whatever they want him to be. You go share the gospel, you'll encounter these people all the time. They'll say, oh, I, I, I know Jesus. Oh, tell me, about, tell me about your relationship with the Lord. Well, he makes me feel better when, 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 I, when I think about you know, the things that I've done, but... Okay, well, well, do you worship him? Do you, do you serve him? Do you go to church and, and, and join with other believers in that way? Well, no, not, not really. But I know Jesus. I, I know who Jesus is. There are denominations that exist. There are churches that call themselves churches that exist. There are many people who have declared themselves to know Jesus because they have made Jesus king. But you don't make Jesus king. Jesus is king, and if you follow him, you must follow him the way that he declares to follow him. You must come to him as he is, not as you wish him to be, and make him into something lesser than he is. They wanted a national ruler. They wanted to avoid oppression. But what we learn about John also, they wanted, they wanted just more free food. But Christ had something a lot better than that to offer. He had something to offer them that would eventually get many of these people killed. Eleven of the disciples that are here end up being tortured for their faith in Christ. Ten of them end up being martyred for their faith in Christ. Why would they go through that? Why would they experience that kind of suffering, that kind of oppression, the kind of stuff that these people who were in the crowd were trying to avoid? Why would they go through that? Because there was something much better in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to give himself away, and that is what we receive when we know him. We receive Christ himself, and for that we see that God has highly exalted him, that he laid down his life unto death and raised him on the third day. And for that, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. The people that see him as king, the people that reject him as king, those knees will all bow. And every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're a believer in Christ today, it's because God sought you. And because he bought you with his redeeming blood. Rejoice in that. Be amazed in that. Don't ever forget that. Don't get over that. Keeping that gospel truth before your eyes will help you to walk as Jesus walked. Seek first the kingdom of God. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, perhaps you've been in church before, perhaps you've been in church for a long time, perhaps this is your first time in a church. But if you don't know Jesus Christ... Know that his blood can make the foulest clean. That he is able to save to the uttermost. Please know that if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you are in a desperate place. That you can be fed temporarily, you can be satisfied temporarily, but all satisfaction you receive in this life will end at the moment of death. And after that, there is the judgment. But please know that there is salvation for you in Jesus Christ if you will believe in him and that his death on the cross was of value for you. If you want to know more about that and you don't know Christ, please speak to me afterwards. I would love nothing more than to tell you more about Jesus Christ, our saving king. Well, let's close now in a word of prayer. Father God, you are a God of wonders. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, Lord, is an amazing thing. And as I look at that, Lord, I am... I am completely in awe of you 
But Lord, even more so, that you would send your son to die on the cross for sinners. That he might satisfy our souls, not merely our hunger. That he might satisfy the deepest needs of who we are. That he might make us alive in you. Lord, I pray for every person here who knows your Son, that every single one of us who are believers in Christ will be edified by this truth, that we will be dedicated to following after you, that we will listen to the Good Shepherd. Lord, I pray for those who are here that do not know you, Lord, that you will open their eyes to understand the truths of the Word, and that you might save them even today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org. 